Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman. And I'm Ira Kreisman. And on this episode, we somberly continue our conversation on Final Fantasy VII. Our characters, without Aerith, when last we left them, they, they, they lost her. She's, uh, she's gone now. And there's this kind of long segment of the game that comes up next that uh, I think is kind of built to let the player take a deep breath and do some dungeon crawling and look for items and materia and kind of sink into this cold northern wasteland and just kind of sit inside of it for a bit. As you know, Cloud and whoever you've taken with you into the city of the ancients, uh, you know, Barrett, Tifa, Red, whoever and company, uh, are kind of gathering themselves and, and rededicating themselves to, to stopping Aerith. Uh, there, there's a couple of forward-going mission statements we have here, right? As we start disc two also of the game. So there's this kind of, okay, what do we do now feeling? And uh, Cloud says something about, there's a person inside of me, a person who is not really me. So we know, one, we've got to solve the mystery of what's going on with Cloud. Why does it seem that Sephiroth can control him sometimes? And what is this? Who is he really? We've had so many hints about this, and now Cloud is finally saying it out loud. There's something about me that I do not understand. So we know we've got to figure that out. And then about Aerith came here to try to save the planet, to try to stop Sephiroth from his plan. And Cloud gets this sort of image and visions about heading to the North Cave, understanding that that's what we have to do next. That's where we need to go to confront Sephiroth. And so the party just heads north of the ancient city, or city of the ancients, and just starts finding kind of desolate towns and and places as they head toward the i guess you'd call it the the north pole of this planet <laughs> right don't they call it the north glacier right great northern glacier we've talked before about how the maps of final fantasy uh <laughs> behave <laughs> like a donut sense. instead of yeah. a globe right yeah. but clearly it's meant to be a globe because we've got a north pole here so yeah, our, our heroes go north, and there's a there's a resort town here. We get, uh, you know, we, we get to Aspen, I think, or maybe Vale. <laughs> right, right. This feels very much like home, doesn't it? Seeing these <laughs> cabins in the snow, the sparsely populated towns, a lot of those out here in Colorado, and, and people just kind of living on whatever's around them, whatever they can gather, you know, very sustainably in, in a lot of places, and up here, uh, you find the Icicle Inn, aptly named, uh, you know, where travelers from afar can find a little bit of warmth and refuge. And it's really presented as kind of a, a resort town. Like, this is where you go. This is like the staging area if you want to go climb the northern glacier, right? But it's also, it's not like they're just getting by. They're just surviving. No, like, people are thriving here. This is, there are snowmen and there are people sledding. Uh, and there, yeah, like you said, there's the icicle in and there's this all everything's very cozy, right? Like this is a this is a destination point, maybe not for everybody, but for those who like outdoorsy uh, activities, you know, <laughs> if you want to go climb the, the glacier or the cliffs or, you know, challenge the monsters in the frozen caves hereabouts or even, uh, dare I say, snowboard, this is yeah. where you go. 
Yeah. Uh, there's a funny game mechanic for some of the dungeons as you're walking around here where you have to stop and tap on buttons, which I'm oh, right. sure in the remake will be like shaking the controller uh, with motion oh, sensors no. and stuff to keep yourself warm, right? Which right. was another way Final Fantasy VII was obsessed with its gameplay not just being whenever you enter battle. You've got all these mini games, and we think about the motorcycle and the snowboarding and all the stuff with the gold saucer, but there's all these little ones too, just having to stop and tap the button so you don't freeze to death on the cold mountain. <laughs> or get the little girl's CPR or yeah. any of a number of other right. just tiny little mini games here and there. So in wandering around this, basically the only point between where we were and where we need to get to, we very conveniently happened to find the exposition room of convenient documents and... Uh -huh. videotape uh -huh. um yeah uh, th this is the computer that that contains all the yeah all the video and dialogue that will explain many things that we may have had questions about not all the things but enough of the things to be fair yeah it, it was about time we got a little bit of exposition about a couple of things so as potentially haphazardly as this is introduced it's, it's certainly like you could see how in a normal world maybe your characters wouldn't stumble upon this at all. Sure. Uh, and, well, and this is some vital information to have. And and there's something to be said for how well kept this little cabin slash laboratory <laughs> slash computer program is. Like, yeah, it's been, what, 20 years or something since anybody lived here, and it's exactly as it was. I imagine in the remake, like, somebody's got, you know, got it in a box somewhere or something like that. Like, nobody... This is a small enough town that people would not have just left this building abandoned for the last 20 years. Right. All that having been said, if you get past the conceit of the way it's initially presented, and actually not the way it's presented, I'll say the way the characters stumble upon it, because once you actually get to the files, right, and, and being able to look through the tape, this is actually pretty compellingly presented, I, I would say, and in a, in a pretty great way to fill us in on, like you said, some more, but not all of the backstory. And I think it's a really interesting time because most of this surrounds Aerith, who, you know, it, it, it's pretty fascinating to provide backstory to a character who's just died. Further developing a character even after they've left your party for good, uh, pretty fascinating stuff. But you do find files labeled the original crisis, what is weapon, confidential, and you can start looking through these tapes. So the first thing that really what this is doing is introducing us officially now to characters we've heard about but never seen, Professor Gast and Ilfana. Yeah, the, the only time we've seen Ilfana was in uh, Elmira's memory, Eris' adoptive mother. Right, just dying there next to the train station. And, but, and we've heard of Gast because Sephiroth thinks that Gast was a far superior scientist to Hojo. And, right. and I think that's about it. So what we and the party see on these, uh, for some reason, recorded tapes are conversations between Professor Gast and the Ketra, Cetra? I can't remember what's official now. I gotta play the remake again for that part. I can't remember um, either. Ilfana. And it's basically him just asking her questions about 
her ancient ancestors and their knowledge and what she knows about certain concepts, right? And one of the first things that they talk about is the Ketra having lived in this area up around the Great Northern Glacier now, but before it was like that, that they would have conversations with the planet. This is something where we're getting more and more into the planet kind of having its own willpower. In fact, that's where this, I think, is really nailed down because this is, she mentions, you know, the, this is also the origin story, I guess, for Genova, that something large fell from the sky, created a wound, and it took a very long time for the planet to heal and that they were ready to leave. And this is something really disturbing. This is something appeared taking the image, the visage of their dead family members and friends. Ah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty upsetting. So the Ketra eventually come up with a name for Genova, the crisis or the calamity, depending on what version you're reading, what your translation is. What I like is that could even be in-game translations. It could go either way, right? The calamity from the sky. Right. This being that at first approached as a friend, but then ends up giving them this virus that transformed the that transforms the Ketra into monsters, which makes me wonder how many of the random monsters that are just roaming the countryside in Gaia that mm -hmm. we've killed are like former Ketra who through no fault of their own are like this because of sure. the, it's kind of like the fiends in Final Fantasy X. Like it, it's a, oh man. That, right. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, maybe they're descended of, it, it's sort of like the, uh, the humans being turned into espers by the, the warring triad. That, that part's pretty disturbing. Uh, the fact that, I, I think it's interesting that Genova parallels uh, Lavos, like we said when we were talking about uh, Chrono Trigger, named by Isla's people. Right. Lavos, I can't remember what the direct translation was meant to be, but it's like the fire from the sky or the calamity from the sky. I right. think that's the imbalance of this world comes from outside this world is, is particularly interesting. I also like that Elfana mentions that the calamity from the sky, Genova, this alien infection, gave them a virus uh, because that sort of hints at what's to come in Advent Children with geostigma. That was the first thing I thought of when I read virus as well. I was like, ooh, when I you know, had first played this game before all the compilation stuff, I maybe didn't pay as close attention to that word. I wonder also if you do a quick thought experiment with me here. So in Final Fantasy VII, as we're describing it, there's sort of there must be like a camera sort of off up in the corner of the room that's pointed down at the room, and you just see a man in a white jacket, Gast, Professor Gast, speaking to Alfana, a woman with uh, long brown hair and sort of a pink red outfit, and they're just sort of standing in the model of you know the the computer generated model of this PS1 game. I wonder though if, because this is like him recording his interviews with her. Right. Is this like, are they in an interrogation room or is this more documentary like? Is it like, you know, because you can see interviews set up, you know, with a camera on the person asking the questions sure. and a camera on the person answering. Is it going to be like, you know, Decker? Oh, that could be cool. In yeah. Blade Runner. Like, is, is, you know, is it Decker in, interrogating the, the reploids in, in Blade right. Runner or is it more like, you know, 2020 
uh, right. where you've got Leslie Stahl interviewing whomever. The other thing that I think, you know, we're, we're supposed to fill in the gaps here because I, I think it's supposed to kind of start more as one and, uh-huh. and right. We're, and I think we're supposed to fill in those gaps ourselves, or at least it's, it's blank enough that maybe I'm just making that up, but I, Certainly, we know by the end of it, there's a relationship here, right? Because that's what we're right. going to get to. But I, yeah, I think that could be fleshed out really, really well in exactly what you're talking about, a kind of faux documentary style thing where you see at first it's more him interrogating her than him like hearing her stories, coming to understand her plight, the plight of her people, what's going on here, what's really at stake, that maybe the promised land isn't just some place with a whole bunch of energy we can use, that it's more of a concept, a state of mind, really. No. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, yeah, as she's explaining how you guys really don't understand what you're getting into. And as yeah. he starts buying into it, that's when he starts, you know, developing an actual affection for this person as opposed to, you know, like a, I'm, I'm sort of picturing those 70s spy films with a smoke-filled room and he's got like the oversized glasses on and right. kind of Robert Redford-y. <laughs> right. And slowly she wins him over. Right. And, and because it's so easy to, I think, drop Professor Gast as a good guy as opposed to Hojo. But, right. you know, he, he definitely has a lot of issues, too. He does work for Shinra to begin with. He is out here agreeing to you know, do certain things. And, and it, it seems like he has more of a change of heart than anything. Right. right. So not unlike uh, Final Fantasy VI's Sid. Right. Right. After doing this work for a long time, you come to realize that you've lost your humanity. You know, like like you said, we're sort of speculating and filling in the blanks. But yeah, that would be, it'll be interesting to see how this relationship is interpreted when we get into the more expansive remake. Right. Especially once, hint, slight spoiler foreshadowing for later, you start introducing Vincent into the mix and everything that goes on with all this stuff. And, and yeah, well, well, we'll get to all that later. So, Drew, I have a question for you. Is? What is weapon? Right. So, as a part (laughs) of this conversation, one of the things that Ilfana says, and this, I think, is the most agency the planet has been given at this point. She says, the planet knew it had to destroy Genova. We have now fully personify the planet we've known it has like these kinds of whims or you know this this idea of everyone goes back to the planet returns to the planet it has a general desire for things to reach a certain balance but this idea of it knew it had to destroy genova it's got a very specific goal in mind and i i think that's really important again for a lot of the compilation stuff especially as we're looking at remake now and the will of the planet and once we get to the end of the game what does that mean? And it reminds me a lot of, you know, we talked about it in, in Chrono Trigger, and there's some of this in Chrono Cross as well about personifying the planet. And it's just a fascinating concept to me that's obviously taken to like the nth degree here in Final Fantasy VII. It's like not subtle. It's clearly doing stuff. Because right here, it produces, as you asked, weapons, as they're called. We're not really told what they are in this moment, just that they're weapons of its own will, but that it never uses them. Right. And I think this is particularly interesting. It doesn't, it never has to use weapon. Weapons never have to be used because 
uh, a small number of surviving Ketra defeated Genova and confined it. And this is another parallel we've seen in other Final Fantasies, right? The Dawn Warriors of Final Fantasy V, right? Goliath and his buddies coming together to seal away the evil in the in the forest and right. basically turn X-Death into a tree. Right. Like, that wasn't the goal, right? But you seal away the evil uh, and then the evil festers. So I thought right. that was... And that could be its own game, right? Let's, totally. let's see the Dawn Warriors of Final Fantasy VII, a small band of Ketra coming together to defeat Genova. Right. Absolutely. It's it's similar to uh, the War of the Magi in Final Fantasy VI. You said they seal out the evil. That's the humans, right? The espers seal out the evil by closing the door. <laughs> right. The humans on the other side of it. Yeah. And then there's there's no war between espers and humans for a thousand right. years. So. Well, the, the humans and the gods. Right. <laughs> totally right. And so, yeah, this idea now, we know, and we'll, we'll get into it more later, but just to talk about it here, uh, that these are Final Fantasy VII's kaiju. Yeah. The, the great, big, gargantuan monsters of Gaia that are the manifestations of the will of the planet. And in my mind, they're of, you know, of the beasts. Because we talk about, we're always talking about, you know, what happens to Cloud and Aerith and Zack and Tifa and Bear. What happens to them when they die? You know, what happens to the people of the world? And they go into the life stream or whatever. What about, like, the animals and the... You know, whatever. Maybe they become weapons, or maybe that's what it is. But uh, somehow, the the planet uses the power of the life stream to manifest these gargantuan beasts that resemble those of the Godzilla universe, in a clear homage to that tradition in history. Oh, sure, yeah. So, so the planet has been injured by this calamity from the sky. This this Genova alien being that fell upon it and created this huge. You know, a physical gash in the planet, but also a metaphysical gash, right? And so in response, the planet creates its kaiju, uh, but did not have to use them. And then Gast asks, so weapon no longer exists? And Alfana's like, well... Yeah, she says they cannot vanish, remain asleep. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So on that foreboding note, you can now move over and read what's called Daughter's Record. Aww. Aww. Elfana has a daughter. I wonder who that is. Yeah. Uh, And this line kills me when she says she has a face of an angel when she sleeps. (sighs) And uh, And then they clear up any confusion about the parentage. As I think it's Gas says, daughter is both yours and mine. Mm-hmm. So it's okay. And I know they've been out there in this, you know, cold mountain resort town, like you said, for who knows how long, isolated by themselves, you know. And uh, apparently, one thing led to another. Right. And we had our our human non-human crossover. Right. Uh, though the difference between, as we said, between Ketra and humans is is not physical so much as spiritual, right? But yeah, uh, Gaston and Elfana developed a relationship and, and had a baby. And and he is just so cute. Like I want I want to record this and that and I wanna make sure that we, you know, preserve, you know, for memory what she was like as a child. 
Yeah, and he says one thing that like really breaks my heart again because we just lost her. Where he says, "I will protect her no matter what." Oh yes. Oh. And he's like planning what her life is going to be like, and you know. I didn't think about this when I was 11, but now that I'm 34 and the idea of like, you're just starting a family and you're planning out what your daughter's life is going to be like. And one of the things probably isn't dies in her early twenties in this horrific way. Right. And so it's just, again, so, so much heartbreaking after we've just left the moment. Yeah, it's brutal. And then Drew, there's a knock at the door. Ay, 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 ay. Nothing like Hojo bursting in the room to ruin a nice moment and totally kill your buzz. Right, him and his jackbooted Shinra soldiers. Yeah, totally. Gives us a nice little exposition again to let us know that it's two years he's waited on them to. Okay, so now we know how long they've been up there. <laughs> and he refers to Aerith as his new sample. Yeah. We all throw up a little bit in our mouths. It also makes me wonder, you know, to what extent was that the plan from the beginning? Again, we've got to keep Professor Gast on the hot seat a little bit here to, to, <laughs> as we continue to look through their story. But at this point, he does at the very least in this moment, do the right thing, tries to sever all ties with Shinra, says, I'm out, I'm not doing this anymore. You can't have my daughter, you know, the whole thing does, <laughs> at least there's that, right? Right. But, as you mentioned, jackbooted thugs. Yeah, and so I, I do have to wonder here, because Sephiroth knew Professor Gast, uh, considered him a much better man and scientist than Hojo. Which, so, you know, how old is Sephiroth? How much older is he then? Uh, how much of a relationship did he have with Gast? You know, is Gast responsible for the soldier experiments on Sephiroth and the rest of the soldiers? Uh, it's not made real clear here, but I have to, like you said, we got to keep him on the hot seat some. Like he doesn't just get to, he doesn't get a pass just because he's Aerith's biological father. Right. Totally. So, you know, at this point, the guards come in, they, they take the situation, they start to shoot out the camera, which, you know, nice touch, nice touch. Uh, and we just hear, take Aerith and run, uh, and then a bunch of gunfire suggesting that may well have been the end of Professor Gas. And of course, we know that Aerith and Ilfana would end up at that train station in Midgar eventually, and, and, and Aerith would spend a lot of time in the care of Shinra. <laughs> They they have an apartment. I actually liked seeing their apartment in the remake. I thought that was really cool. And she was like, I lived here. I was like, of course, you would have had uh -huh. to have lived somewhere. I, that that really got me. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's, what, five or six by the time right. uh, before she lives with Elmira. So, yeah, Ilfana got to raise her for four or five years, at least. Right. In Shinra Tower. But, right. you know, it's better than nothing. Totally. So we come back to real time. And then we get a little bit of what I'm going to call Final Fantasy VII's trying to give its fans a break. Sure. <laughs> There's been so much drama and sadness, and even this was like a lot to take, right? Uh, right. And so you've got this, you've got a couple of comedic scenes back to back here that uh, allow us a little breathing room. One is that Elena of the Turks, 
shows up basically to try hard <laughs> doing what right, she does yeah. she's just trying hard she is <laughs> love, love her so much you know she comes after the gang and there's this very silly little thing that happens where she goes to throw a punch at cloud and you just get to pick whatever direction you want and you'll dodge it and she'll just like roll down a snowy mount hillside and you're just like right well, and she uh, she is upset at what you did to her boss, Sang. Right. Or excuse me, Song, right? Right. And Cloud's like, that wasn't us. That was Sephiroth. And she's like, don't you lie to me. Yeah. And he's like, D- it was Sephiroth. We didn't do it. Do anything. Uh, it, it's kind of amazing how much this group of super secret agents who do some terrible stuff are, is played for laughs. Effectively so. Right. Well, and, you know, like we said, they're they're pretty sympathetic. Right. I, I like the way they're played in the remake. And I, I mean, when, when Reno answers the phone and, oh yeah, y'all are looking for cloud. And they say, so are we taking cloud? And he's like, nah, oh, it's our day off. Day off man. Like that is one of the most relatable things yeah. in Final Fantasy seven to me. Yeah. Well, what about going and grabbing a map and then snowboarding down the mountain to get where you need to go? Heck yeah, we got. We're trying to make our way all the way to the northern crater now. So yeah, you got to you got to get the old ice climbers map off the wall. It's either at his place or it's at the inn. And then there's this kid who who totally biffed it a few weeks ago on a snowboard and isn't allowed outside. So you can totally borrow it, bro. And just let me know when you get good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. It's so random, but. Yeah. Oh, and then it becomes, this becomes, you know, Snowboarder 64. Right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's fun. I think I think it's a lot of fun. And again, I can't wait to see how this is done in the remake. I'm sure they'll blow it out a ton. I can't wait to go down the mountain and with all the different characters. Let me snowboard as Red 13, please. Yes. Hey, speaking of which, do you remember in Final Fantasy X where they've got to, like, break up the wedding? And they're yeah. all just sliding down on right. these cables. And like Titus, I get, right? Right. And he's all fancy and he's flipping around. But, but freaking Lulu, Lulu in her and dress I'm made insane. of belts. <laughs> like that was awesome. I was yes. not, yeah. Give me all that. So as whatever as it may be, it's because it's Final Fantasy, it works. Uh, and, and you snowboard down the mountain and it's a whole lot of fun. And again, just remembering ourselves back in 1997, we never played anything like that. Video games didn't really do that. Just like, oh, now you're playing this game, but in a totally different style than you were before. Like, it was really cool, so. Um, yeah, so. So not only does Final Fantasy swap between speculative fiction genres, it also swaps between gameplay genres. Right. Reason why it connected with so many people. It's just all the all the stuff. They were like, let's just give them all the stuff. Uh, so you go down the hill. There's a long dungeon you can run through and find materia and fight a lot of interesting monsters and all that stuff. Eventually, you end up at the northern crater. this really great cinematic move. I feel like it's been a little while since so we've talked about, again, the camera movements of 
uh, you know, the PlayStation 1, but it, it was amazing to see stuff like this back in the day because you just wouldn't, even going back to like Final Fantasy 6 or something like tactics, these things with 2D kind of ISO, you know, viewpoints. And then you've got Cloud walking up to the edge of this crater and the camera sweeps from behind him and up over his shoulder to reveal this enormous crater with another smaller hole in the ground, kind of like a volcano with, instead of like lava or something coming out of it, this green and white light swirling all around it. And it's just, I've often said one of the great things that Final Fantasy can do is give you a, well, I've never seen anything quite like that before in my life experience. And this was one of those, you know, especially back in 1997. It was like, whoa. <laughs> and it's got the uh, Aurora Borealis in the background and the and the night sky. And yeah, it's got that kind of geyser vortex of, I, I assume it's life stream, right? Yeah. And this, this is the scar left on the planet by the calamity from the sky, Genova. Yeah, and uh, Cloud remarks that, you know, Sephiroth takes this energy, and that's what he's doing, right? That's why he's trying to summon Meteor with the Black Materia so he can strike another wound into the planet, create more of these life stream bursts. He'll suck up all of the energy and turn himself into a god, basically by being the most powerful being in the world. And uh, so you... You start heading down, and again, the viewpoint that it gives you is you start walking down into the crater for just the scope of it is, it's something else, man. Like, it really gives you the sense of you are this tiny, tiny little person in, in this enormous crater that has another crater inside of it. <laughs> yeah, it, it really does a good job of presenting the scope of the issue, and that what Sephiroth wants to do is even bigger that's uh yeah yeah that's i mean I, I think that goes to drive home the enormity of what it is our characters are trying to stop in this world there's a moment here as you actually enter into the you know dungeon part of it where no matter what your party is if you don't have tifa in your party she'll show up and say hey you know i feel like we're getting close to sephiroth i want to go along He's done so much to me, I need to be here for this. So it's something where both Cloud and Tifa, you can decide who the third person is in your party, but for what's coming up, you need both of those people around. And, and as you're going along, you start seeing these people we've seen before, the, the folks in black robes, right? Presumably these are some of the ones we've seen before being drawn to the North Crater for some reason. I wonder if that will be explained soon. <laughs> and some of them are just like, Healing over as they're approaching, like just they're just dropping dead. Some of them like off of cliffs and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> like are they slipping and falling or throwing themselves off the cliffs? Right. We know that Sephiroth thinks that when people die, uh, especially by his hand, that they're just feeding into his power. Right. Maybe that's part of it. Right. So then we get this pretty abrupt edit and transition. Yeah. Hey, look up there. Suddenly we're aboard an airship and we see Rufus, Scarlet, and Heidegger. So, not, not good. <laughs> it's not, 
super gross. <laughs> yeah, the sort of most ruthless aspect of the Shinra Empire, right? And Rufus is is doing the evil villain monologue of, I've done it. I have found the promised land. He even has this great line to show what a daddy's boy, daddy issues person he is when he says, sorry, old man, I found it first. You know, this just like, it's like you're like dad, you're like, you're, you're glad your dad got murdered by Sephiroth so that you could fulfill his dream of what, what is wrong with yeah. you? Yeah. Well, for one thing, his father was President Shinra. <laughs> that probably I imagine that has something to do with help. it. Um, I, it, I gotta say, it amazes me sometimes how freaking lucky you and I are to have had the parents. I know, right? Like they weren't perfect, but they were pretty darn great. And yeah, neither of us turned into Rufus. So, <laughs> so there you go. It's a good call. Or any other sort of autocrat with massive parental issues. So Right. Uh, but we, then we get this pan back to the back of the airship. And I find this pairing really interesting, by the way, that Hojo is standing there also evil monologuing, but under his breath even more eviler than Rufus. <laughs> right? right. In the back. Right. Uh, I do like that Rude is standing there, guard, not saying anything, but just... It, it appears to be his job in this particular moment to guard Hojo, who probably can't defend himself, uh, you know, or whatever. But uh, I, I, I really appreciated that. We're just getting this kind of collection of villains that we haven't seen Rude and, and Hojo really in the same place before. And you go, oh, yeah, it would make sense that if he was coming along for a mission, he might just be assigned to guard the doctor. And he'd be like, yeah, okay. And in Hojo's monologue, he says... That land is no one's. It's where the reunion will take place. They will all gather here. I wonder if we'll see Sephiroth. Yeah. And it's, uh, and again, again, I guess because we were just thinking about kaiju movies. We just watched uh, King of the Monsters not too long ago, but it kind of reminds me of sure. somebody who's basically sitting there going, yeah, let's see how many people the monster's going to kill. Like, he's just fascinated by whatever's going to happen here, no matter how horrible it might be. Right. He is... Uh, it's interesting because I feel like we're about to be presented with this question. They're really about to ask out loud, you know, who is the villain of this game? This is a debate that's been going on for 20 years now. Uh, you know, is it Genova? Is it Sephiroth? Who's really pulling the strings here? I'm, I've always been like, it's Hojo. <laughs> So back on the ground, our heroes continue closer to the center of this crater. And as they do, Sephiroth appears, or at least we think it's Sephiroth, but we're getting a clearer understanding now that that's maybe not what's been going on here the whole time. Every time we've seen Sephiroth, right, there's... Okay, so well, let me just go through. So what happens next is this version of Sephiroth like just slashes a couple of these hooded beings for fun, I guess. Again, maybe he's, like you said, adding souls to the live stream, okay. But then it disappears. And then we just get 
dialogue over the screen. So disembodied voice, I guess, or disembodied voices, because it says, our purpose is to deliver the black materia to our master. Cloud says, our, which <laughs> holds all kinds of meaning, right? He could just be asking, who is our, who are you? Who are you, they, but, but who are we? Am I you? Am I our, am I they? Might be. It's a loaded one word question from Cloud, but the disembodied voice continues, those who carry Genova cells. And they start to fade out and Sephiroth appears again and pulls off his like signature move, apparently, uh, appearing from right. above the team, slashing down on them just like as he did against Aerith. But I guess because it's the whole party, he couldn't just impale one person. He had to slash at everybody. So no one's killed, but everyone's momentarily wounded and shocked and, and knocked to the floor. And then a battle commences, but not with Sephiroth. <laughs> no, no, with Genova. Right. Again, and this is not the first time this has happened. Remember on the ship, we thought we were about to fight Sephiroth. No, we fought Genova. It's like, did he throw a piece of Genova's arm at us? It's not clear, right? Right. Yeah, this, is, this has happened a couple times where we think we're about to throw down with Sephiroth, but instead we're fighting Genova. And I wonder if maybe that's not just RPG, JRPG shenanigans, right? Right. It's funny because, yeah, I remember back in the day thinking, like, this is just weird and I'm not getting it and I'm not understanding it. And this is a reminder that it's okay as long as you explain it well eventually. And right here, they don't do the whole thing, but it becomes clear that you've never actually been fighting Sephiroth, that you've been right. fighting pieces of Genova that are taking the form of Sephiroth to mess with you, particularly right. Cloud, obviously, right? Right, because Cloud is also connected. Right. Sephiroth, or, or whatever version of Sephiroth this is, even has a line where it's like, yeah, you know what, you're right. This is the end. This this body's uh, no longer useful to me or something along those lines. Right. It's like, oh, okay, there's multiple bodies for Sephiroth. Is it his consciousness? Is it only Genova? Right. Not entirely clear yet, but things are becoming clearer. And so it's clear that, yeah, we haven't been encountering like the same physical, that, that the Sephiroth we've been chasing this whole time has not just been an alive human being who we can't quite catch up to, <laughs> right? Right. That, that's not what this chase has been about. And I was asking the question earlier, and I knew the answer, but it was like, but Sephiroth doesn't wear a, a black cloak with a hood. He wears a long black jacket, and he's got very obvious silver hair. Why do we keep thinking, like, why do we keep mixing up right. Sephiroth with whomever these people in the black cloaks are? And because they also are connected to Genova for whatever reason. Right. And can take that form and then can take the form of Genova and fight us. So because we are a good RPG party and we've leveled up properly and have our materia equipped, we defeat Genova or this part of Genova. Clearly, Genova cells and, and parts of her can break off and kind of have their own willpower and and all of that. And, and we fought off several versions of them. And, and then Cloud, you know, remarks, Genova cells. That's right. what this is all about. Yeah. The Genova reunion. 
this is now where we get again a little bit of clarity on this word which is intrinsically tied to final fantasy 7 the word reunion we don't get the full theory here but we're basically witnessing it right that all of these people with genova cells injected into them are reuniting back here at the northern cave and then as you're kind of trying to wrap your head around that again tifa gives this uh, so this whole time it wasn't even sephiroth that we've been after which is a great question that they don't even immediately give and, <laughs> and, and, and the answer to right it's just like and again she has this this half a sentence where she says but sephiroth is dot 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 and i assume she was about to say dead right because she was there but right. she stops herself from saying it because she still doesn't want to screw with Cloud's head too much, or maybe not right at this moment. So that was interesting. And then to kind of really give us the biggest piece of information that we need, Cloud sums it all up by saying the real Sephiroth is just beyond here. And how does he know that? Did he just have a, a clarity of, of vision? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> or is he maybe being reunioned? Right. This some of the cellular memory. Right. After he's been experimented on, perhaps. Uh, he even has this weird line where he says it, and I'm not even entirely sure what he's referring to. It's releasing a powerfully strong will from deep within the planet's wound. Genova, Sephiroth, the planet itself. Either way, it appears Cloud is just being powerfully pulled to deep within right. the planet's wound. And then he picks up, Drew. <laughs> yeah. The, the black materia, it's right there. Right, after, I guess it was dropped by the, the portion of Genova that you just beat. So after all the trauma of having handed the black materia over to Sephiroth, unwillingly or at least unwittingly i guess now you've got it back and and they go okay we we've got it back now all we have to do is is beat sephiroth and end this right right that feels very end gamey again it, it right? does even with it, like the swirling nebulous background it's like yeah this is like the end of a final fantasy game <laughs> it's it's just not yet <laughs> it's so very not but i i love the way they set you up here. And then there's this really fascinating moment where Tifa suggests that perhaps this time, yes, Cloud gives somebody else the black materia to hold on to. Good call, Tifa. I'm glad someone's got a head on her shoulders in this party. Yeah, uh, I love that she chooses her moment here. She's not gonna mess with his mind and, and screw with his memories and talk about the Nibelheim incident. But the black materia is right there in Cloud's hands. And last time she watched him hand it over and she's going, you know, <laughs> perhaps mm -hmm. it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And this is really interesting, too, because then you get to choose. Let's give it to the uh, traitor robot in the castle. I was going to say, so your choices are Kate Chi, who is a traitor who's holding Barrett's daughter hostage, who's already betrayed us once but then did make a noble sacrifice. Sort of. Sort of. 
at least showing that, as we talked about before, the end goal of saving the planet is probably the same as ours. Then, of course, there's Yuffie, the Materia Thief. <laughs> she likes Materia. Give it to her. Give it to Yuffie. She won't run off with it forever and ever. Then you've got grumpy old man, curmudgeon, arguably abusive husband. <laughs> right. Sid. The vampire <laughs> guy you found in the basement. Uh-huh. Former secret agent who used to work for Shinra. Right. Or lab rat dog. Or Barrett. Yeah, give it to Barrett. That's the answer. I mean, that seems... Yeah, <laughs> you give it to Papa Bear. That seems like the obviously correct choice. If I'm doing this in real life, I'm, I'm handing the material to Barrett. I'm saying... And, you know, I, I think it'd be great to, again, talk about Remake. If, if the, you get the option, there could be different scenes for uh-huh. each one, whoever you choose. But there could, there's the potential for, like, a phenomenal Cloud and Barrett scene at this moment. Of Like, we've been through so much together. We have been giving each other shit this whole time. We really didn't trust each other at the beginning. Then we moved to trusting each other and not liking each other. Then we moved to finding some of the parts of each other we could like. Now dealing with tragedy, we've really become brothers in arms. And now this most important thing on our journey that has defined what we're out here to do. I can't trust myself with it. You bear it, you're my leader. You're the leader of Avalanche. You are the heart and soul of this team. You have been the moral conscience of this whole enterprise. And I trust that you will keep this away from me, keep it in safe hands. One of which is a gun. <laughs> it, it seems, yeah, that seems like a good choice. Though I do kind of wonder what would happen if you plugged it into his gun, like you plug other materia into your weapons. Right. Barrett transforms into a Megazord. Okay, yeah, you know what? I'm sold. Let's do it. So then after choosing who to give the black materia to, Cloud and Tifa and one other person of your choice, proceed forward into a bright white light that totally blanks out the screen. And we get two lines of dialogue here. And one is just Tifa going, what the hell, basically? (laughs) Which I think is a perfectly reasonable response to complete lack of orientation all of a sudden. And Cloud Ira tells her to calm down. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, This is probably a thing of the times and a translation thing. I hope to God in the remake it's something like, don't panic or don't worry. Because I I think that's what they're trying to get across here. But I couldn't help when I read, calm down, Tifa, to be like, ooh, dude, you've really never had a girlfriend before, have you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know how emotional women can be. You know how hysterical they can get. Yeah, that's that's maybe not a good look. Uh, but yeah, some a comforting phrase might be might be nice here. Yeah. But also coming from Cloud, like from the man who's had how many different mental breaks between the beginning of the game and now. <laughs> right. Like you're gonna tell who to calm down. Get Mr. it together, Strive. Tifa. <laughs> yeah. Like Tifa's one of the most grounded people Excuse in this me? story. Yeah. Totally. 
but but yeah, I, I agree that her her reaction makes total sense. And I, I do wonder if that if Cloud's just being stoic or if that's meant to be you know, he's got this sudden clarity for whatever reason. Yeah. Is it an effect of that? Well, whatever clarity he had oh, no. is yeah. about to just get absolutely obliterated because when the white screen fades away and we're getting an image on the screen again, we're back in Nibelheim. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned by reaching out to us on Twitter at FFWeeklyPod. You can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com, or you can find us on Patreon for more podcasts and content at patreon.com slash FFWeekly. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app totally for free so that you don't miss an episode. Be sure to join us next time when we dive deeper into Cloud Psyche and ask how much any of us truly know ourselves. <laughs>